Good morning once again. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 14 as we continue in our series uh, Rediscovering Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Turn with me to Mark 14 and actually also if you would I'm, I'm going to jump in a little bit into the Old Testament today as well as we look at the Passover and the Lord's Supper, Jesus' final supper with his friends before he was uh, betrayed and crucified. So go with me to Mark 14 and then put your finger in the Old Testament and go to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to jump back from Exodus 12 to uh, Mark 14 several times this morning. So turn with me to Mark 14. We'll read our passage for this morning and then put a finger in Exodus 12 as well this morning. But let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump in together this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Um, it's something that we desperately need to hear, for Lord, it is the words of life. It is the very word of hope that you have given us. Um, we thank you, we pray this morning, that you would um, open our eyes, open our ears to hear the truth, to hear the gospel uh, afresh and anew this morning. Pray for me, Lord, I just pray for your grace as we uh, look at this passage this morning, and that, that I would accurately preach this and uh, give the word as, Lord, you intended it to be given. Father, that Holy Spirit, you would guide us and direct us this morning and uh, help us to see the good news and cherish it this morning and cherish Jesus above all today. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, Mark 14, we're going to look at verses 12 through 16 and then 20 through 22 through 25. Here now God's word in Mark 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into this city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where my, may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready to prepare for us. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And there they prepared the Passover. And then jump ahead to verses 22 through 25. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this, my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Well, this morning we're getting into uh, the last week of Jesus' life here, and we could spend months on this, and uh, we're trying to wrap up this series of Rediscovering Jesus and Mark on Easter Sunday. So this morning, the Lord's Supper, as we talk about this, really gets its roots from the Passover that comes from the Old Testament, and so that's why I want us to look at the Passover that really is the 10th plague that God enacts on Egypt in order to to bring ultimate deliverance from his children Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And so we're going to go back to Exodus this morning and look at what is the Passover for in order to make sense of Jesus and his last supper with his disciples. We really need to understand what the Passover is all about. And that really Jesus, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of the Passover. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Just a quick review of history. Do you remember the plagues, the ten plagues that God enacted on Egypt he used to really break uh, Egypt's back, if you will, to break Egypt's uh, bondage over Israel. Lord, the Lord used those plagues, right? And if you know the nine plagues, the plagues of frog and blood and boils and gnats, those plagues, all of those plagues, or at least the first nine plagues, really affected the kingdom of Egypt, right? 
But the nation of Israel wasn't necessarily touched by those first nine plagues, if you remember your, your, your biblical history. But when you get to the 10th plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn son, that plague did, in fact, or could have affected Israel, just like it, could have, it did affect the Egyptians. Because God was unleashing his wrath on Egypt because of his covenant love and his covenant that he, had ma- he had made with his people Israel. It was like that Papa Bear uh, issue, you know, like, you know, I have children, and it's this dad's instinct to protect his children if your father's here. You know what that is? You just can't help it, right? It's, it's inherent within you. It's that Papa Bear feeling that you have that you want to watch out over your kids. Same thing with God here. He was the Papa Bear, if you will, watching out over his children Israel, and he was enacting his wrath on the nation of Egypt over Pharaoh to protect his children. But when we get to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn child or son, all of a sudden Israel is no longer under the protection, automatic protection of God. There was something that they had to do in order to be protected from God and his wrath. They had, there's uh, something that they had to do in order to be uh, protected from God's judgment. So in the 10th plague, they had to do something. So the father of the Jewish family, and this is where the Passover comes from, and we'll read this in a minute from Exodus. The father of the Jewish family would choose a spotless, blemish-free lamb. He would keep that lamb for 14 days. He would slaughter that lamb, cut its throat, very bloody, take that blood, gather the blood in a bowl, it would be quarts of blood, and then take a hyssop branch and spread that blood on the doorpost, or the frame of the doorpost, as a, sign of, as, as a sign that the Lord would pass over that home, right? So let's go to Exodus 22 and look at where this comes from and why this happens. So go to Exodus 22, and we're going to look at verses 21 through 24, God's command for the Passover. Exodus, I'm sorry, I said Exodus 22. Exodus 12, pardon me. Exodus 12, verses 21 through 24. Exodus chapter 12, 21 through 24. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this as a right, as a statue for you and for your sons forever. So what does he tell us? He tells tells us that the destroyer will pass over their house, right, if the blood of the spotless lamb is applied to the doorposts of their house. And if not, what happens? If not, their lives would have been in imminent danger too. So Israel and Egypt... Both in imminent danger, people in imminent danger of God and his judgment if God had not provided a means for their salvation that Passover night, they, the Israelites, his children, would have suffered the loss of their firstborn sons too. And this final plague, God is using this final plague to teach them about their sin and about his salvation. You see, Israel wasn't just in slavery and in bondage to Egypt. They were but they were in need of a deeper deliverance, weren't they? They needed a much deeper deliverance than just the bondage they had to Egypt. 
you know, if you were to just read Exodus, at least up to this point where we read tonight, or today, and you didn't have any knowledge of the book of Genesis, you really didn't have any knowledge of, of sin in particular, you would have probably been sympathetic to Israel. Oh, poor Israel. You know, the, the Egyptians were the perpetrators here. Israel, you guys should get off. But if you look at Genesis, if you look at the whole of Scripture, you understand in God's economy, at the heart level, every single one of us is equal, aren't we? Now, socially, economically, there are differences, but at the heart level, spiritually, God has leveled the play, playing field for all of us as far as sin goes. So, you know, Melanie mentioned that she's doing this ministry, uh, prisons ministry uh, in, the, in the women's prison, or you go into a maximum security prison and you think of these people have done, who've done horrendous crimes, but really, folks, you're no different than they are. You've not committed that crime per se, but Pete read this morning to us from Matthew 5, you know, well, I've, I've obeyed the Lord's commandments. I've never slept with another woman. I've been faithful to my wife. But then Jesus says, even if you have looked upon a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. We are all on the same playing field, same level, spiritually, equal at heart level. So Israel had sinned against the Lord and they, they were guilty. They were just as guilty as the Egyptians. And they had sinned in several ways. How so? Let's just look at a couple of ways that they had done this. You remember when Moses was uh, coming to them and bringing to them God's promise that he would deliver them from the hands of Egypt, break Egypt's back. And God began to enact these plagues to begin to show Egypt who was boss, if you will. You remember the Israelites said to Moses, listen, Moses, we already had it bad, but now you've made it worse for us. You are like a stench in our nose, Moses. You've made it worse for us. And so they begin to reject Moses, who is God's ordained messenger and prophet. And so really, as they rejected Moses, they were rejecting God. So here we have Israel's rejection of God and his plan. They didn't like God's plan for deliverance, did they? They were fighting God's plan for deliverance. They didn't want this misery. They were fighting that. How about being guilty of idolatry? You know, Israel was under bondage and captivity of Egypt for over 400 plus years. So think about this. If you've been under bondage for that long under a, a nation who has enslaved you, wouldn't you think you would begin to love and become much like your captors? There's some syndrome, I can't remember the title of it or the name of it, but when somebody is kidnapped and they've been with that perpetrator who's kidnapped them for a long time, they begin to kind of take on the attributes of their kidnapper. That's the same way with Israel. They begin to take on the attributes of Egypt. See, Israel wasn't just a victim here. They were perpetrators too. They breathed the atmosphere in of Egypt's idol worship. I was talking, we were talking about this at men's Bible study on Friday, how children breathe in the atmosphere of your parenting, don't they? And that can be really encouraging, or that certainly can be very discouraging, can it? You ever see your child sometimes when you see the way they, they do something or the way they respond, and you think, where'd they get that from? And your wife's like, you? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Children breathe in the atmosphere of your home. They breathe in the atmosphere of your panting. They breathe in the atmosphere of your marriage. They breathe in the atmosphere of your attitudes and your actions. Israel was breathing in the atmosphere of Egypt. And they had picked up some bad habits. You remember uh, later on in the book of Exodus, Moses is on the mount meeting with God. And what does Israel do? Well, he sure has been up there a long time. Good grief. What are we going to do? And they begin to melt all their gold, right? And they fashion a golden calf and begin to worship these pagan uh, uh, fertility god that Egypt had, this calf. And then Moses comes down, and, and what does Aaron say? Moses, you wouldn't believe it. Out, it. out popped this calf from the fire. We just don't know where it came from. And they start worshiping it. 
what a lame excuse. And and perhaps the biggest way that we see that Egypt and Israel were equals is that God's people were sinners by nature. They, like us, have participated in the guilt of the fall from the very beginning, like Genesis. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the avenging angel, this destroyer that visited the Jewish households, wasn't just there because, like the Egyptians, they were bad by nature, but it's clear they, by nature, were sinners. And so the message of the Bible as a whole says that sin always demands that a debt be paid. One of the main themes of Scripture is that sin always demands that a debt be paid. Sin is a capital offense, and God says plainly that the debt to be paid is death. What does Paul say in Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is what? Death. What we deserve is death, folks. And sometimes, you know, I read, we read Romans 6.23, we read Romans 6.23, or we preach about sin, and we talk about the, the wages of sin is death, and you get this glazed look over your face. Don't have that glazed look. Business with God is serious, folks. Sin deserves death. I can't say it any more plainly. And it's not just physical death. It is an eternal spiritual death where there is no longer any common grace or presence from God. God removes his presence for you. He says, okay, I'll give you what you want. If you really don't want me, then you cannot want me for an eternity. And I will oblige you by removing myself from you for an eternity. An existence, an eternal existence without God's even common grace. That's infinitely scary, folks. Sin is a real issue. And the debt that we owe is death. Sin produces death. What we deserve is death. So when God planted Adam and Eve in the garden, what did he tell them? Adam and Eve, you must not eat right from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, what does he say? You will surely die. He warns them. And then in their disobedience, what happened? They forfeited their right to eternal life. We forfeited our right to eternal life. And every generation since, there is death. It is unavoidable. Romans 5 says, death came to all men because all sinned. So none of us have lived as we have should. Therefore, the debt all of us owes, we cannot ultimately pay back. But that's, that's the clear message of the Bible, right? But also, the clear message of Scripture is that though sin always demands that a debt be paid, it kind of begs the question, okay, if that's true, why couldn't have God just snapped his fingers and said, okay, snap my fingers. We're going to start all over. Everybody's equal, same playing field. I'm going to snap my fingers and I'm going to bring about redemption just like that and it's done. Here's the problem with that. Put it like this. You see, debt has to be paid with an equal payment. And if God could have just snapped his fingers and said, okay, everything's done, clean slate, forgiven, that would be an anemic disinterested and wimpy God, and I can almost envision it, it would be like God sitting in a chair on the beach and his kids are rebelling and and throwing temper tantrums all around him in in complete rebellion, and he says, get away, let me read my newspaper. Forgiven, you're done, go go play. That's an anemic and disinterested God. I don't want to worship a God who just dismisses sin with a finger snap. You know, I don't want to go to a doctor. If I have cancer... I don't want to go to a doctor who just says, well, I'm going to treat your symptoms, but we're not really going to do radical and invasive surgery 
to deal with the cancer that has invaded your core of your body. No. I want a God who deals with my cancer, who doesn't just snap his finger, but cuts it out. See, our sense of justice, God has even stamped on us because he has stamped his image within us. That he has even stamped upon us this ish, uh, desire for justice, this desire even for forgiveness. But even our desire for justice and forgiveness is warped and it's broken and it's often selfish. And we can't find ultimate justice and ultimate forgiveness if left to ourselves. And so the greater message is this, is that God's mercy, in his mercy, he always provides a way for his people to be safe. And we see that in the Passover, God's provision of the pa Passover, okay? We saw the purpose for the Passover, that we are sinful and that we are broken. But God always provides a provision. And here is the provision, my second point, the provision with the Passover. You see, God wants to bring a deeper deliverance that only could become by the provision of a lamb that was offered as a sacrifice for sin. Now, have you ever thought about this for a moment? Why does God providing for Israel, giving, him, giving Israel this provision, being protected by God's wrath, why would God use a lamb, for instance, to do that? Why did a lamb have to bleed? Why did an animal have to die and bleed? Again, why, why couldn't it have been just a finger snap? Well, that night in Egypt, when the tenth plague was unleashed, it was the angel of the Lord killing all of the firstborn son's males. And it would have been, a, think about this, unimaginably terrifying. Can you imagine the sound? Not only the sound of the angel of death coming and killing all of those children. It would have been terrifying. It would have been a force or a power that you couldn't stop. But imagine the wailing. Imagine the, the cries. Household after household as death visited, unimaginable. And if you were Israel and you would obey God's instruction and you were protected by this terrifying force by a lamb. God gave them safety through a lamb. Now, I'm not trying to be trite, but a lamb, couldn't it have been a lion or a fierce tiger? <laughs> but it was a lamb. It's like the most mildest, most unthreatening, meekest of animals, Right? but it was a blood sacrifice that protected Israel from the terrifying wrath of God. God tells them to kill a spotless, perfect lamb and to eat it with the family, to put its blood on the doorposts, and that's what we call the Passover, okay? So the key principle is this. God has to meet a great injustice with an equal act of justice. In God's economy of grace, in God's economy of salvation, God gives, God always gives what he demands. And we see this again and again through scripture that a lamb or an animal is sacrificed in order to save someone, in order to save a people. Think about this. You can go back to the Old Testament and see this. I'll just briefly give you a couple of instances of this. Think about Genesis. The very beginning, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. What does God do? They're hiding from God, naked in the garden, hiding from God. God comes and walks in the garden, discovers, finds Adam and Eve, knows where they are. And what does he do? Do you remember what he does? He kills an animal, doesn't he? And then he clothes them. Do you remember that? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned against the Lord. God kills an animal. In order for them to be covered, in order for them to be clothed, an animal had to die. And thus they were protected. You see that? Genesis 3.
Here's another instance. You go to the very next chapter in Genesis 40. Remember this, Cain and Abel. Cain, both of them come and give offerings to the Lord. Cain brought a fruit uh, and veggie offering, if you will. And Abel brought the best portions of meat from the firstborn of his flock. And God looked on Abel's offering, right, with favor. Abel brought God the firstborn lamb and his offering was accepted. He was safe. What about Genesis 22? You remember this? When Abraham sacrificed or went to sacrifice Isaac, right? God told Abraham to take his firstborn and only son, Isaac, whom he loved, right? Take him to the mountains of Moriah and sacrifice his only son as a burnt offering. And as I'm sure they're going up on the mountain, you know, Isaac was no dummy, right? <laughs> he was no dummy. I think he realized that something was missing. He saw this pile of wood, probably saw or knew that his dad had some kind of knife. And he knew that there was something missing. Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is it, Dad? You see, Abraham and even Isaac knew that God required, what God required, and Abraham knew that God would keep his promises. If God asked for me, my son, for my son, I will trust him, right? And you know the story. You go to Genesis 22, Abraham is obedient. He takes Isaac, he bounds him on this altar. He's about to kill his son. God interrupts him, right? Verbally interrupts him and says, stop. Stop, I know that you trust me now. And then he looks over and he sees a ram and its horns tangled in bushes and he sacrifices the ram instead of his son. Again, we see this principle. God did what? He, requi he provided what he required. A lamb had to die in the place of Abraham's firstborn son. And so that's what we see so clearly spelled out here for us. In the Passover, God required a substitute sacrifice to die in order for his people to be safe and folks beloved that is the utterly consistent message of the bible that anyone who wants to be safe and meet god must come to him on the basis of something that he has provided a sacrifice that he has provided we see that in the old testament god made this provision for a lamb or some other animal and something had to happen to that animal right Payment had to be made so our, out, our outstanding debt could be taken care of. Sub, something had to be substituted in order for our debt to be taken care of. So let's look at what is this payment with the Passover. Third point here is God's payment through the Passover. What was the payment? What's the currency of forgiveness in God's economy? It's blood, isn't it? The currency of forgiveness in God's economy is blood. Now earlier I mentioned that the central theme of the Passover, actually I failed to mention this and I should have mentioned this the very first thing, that the central theme of the Passover and really the central theme of redemption is the bloody death of a helpless victim. The bloody death of a helpless victim. And I know many of us are squeamish at the sight of blood. I know I have a friend who just, man, even mentioned the word blood and he gets faint. <laughs> so don't faint on me if y'all are, sorry. But you know, even mentioning or even the sight of blood, it, it, the thought of that can make you squeamish. But because of God and the Passover requirements, it, it explicitly required blood. But blood was a sign, right? Exodus 12, he said, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses when you are there. When I see the blood, God says, I will pass over you. So what is God saying to, to Moses, to, to the nation of Israel? This blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. It's a sign to be seen, right? You can't miss that. It's graphic. This lamb's throat was cut. Quarts of blood were spilled out and collected in this bowl. It would be dipped in there with a hyssop branch and spread over the doorpost. 
It's a visual sign. You can't miss it. And signs are meant to be seen with our eyes. It's something to be experienced visibly. You can't miss it, right? It's proof to you that you are safe. Putting that blood on the doorpost was proof to that family, proof to that firstborn Jewish child that he was safe from the angel of death. See, God's serious about the business of our salvation. He isn't just going to snap his fingers. The blood of the lamb wasn't a finger snap, was it? It was bloody. And there's blood all over Exodus 12 as the Israelites slaughtered the lambs, right? It was gruesome. And think about this, over the centuries, Passover is still celebrated. Over the centuries, Passovers, these sacrifices have been repeated hundreds of thousands, millions of times. In fact, the, the famous Jewish historian Josephus said that several hundred thousand lambs each year were herded through the streets of Jerusalem to be sacrificed. Astounding amount of blood. <laughs> hundreds of thousands, thousands of gallons of blood. Olympic-sized swimming pool amounts of blood, folks. And it wasn't just a sign, a necessary sign for the people, but it was necessary because the shedding of blood represents the taking of another's life so that you could be spared. And that's where we have another key principle here, the principle of substitution. We call it substitutionary atonement. The currency of substitution for God was the blood of a lamb, blood. So on the Passover, the Israelites would have huddled together in their homes waiting for God to come in judgment. And that night as the angel of death, the destroyer, came, he would claim a life from every household in Egypt except for those Israelites who had put blood of the lamb over their doorposts. Death passed over them because there was a substitute that night, the lamb, who died in their place and death passed over them. God saw on the door, just as it was a sign for the people, it was a sign for God, the destroyer, on the door and God would see that and go, someone has died in this house and the debt has been paid. And God's judgment and God's wrath was all of a sudden turned away from that door to, doorpost because there was blood between God and that sinner. Blood stood between the sinner and God. So when Israel looked up and saw on the door that they had a covering for their sin, and God looked down on that doorpost and saw the satisfaction was made for their sin, the occupants of that house for their sin, who paid for it? The lamb paid for it. And his judgment was turned aside. Can you imagine being a firstborn son of, of an Israelite family that night? And as you hear the weeping and wailing, and you're, you're a firstborn child, you're five years old, you hear weeping and wailing going on, and guess what? You are safe. And you would have automatically gone, that lamb died for me, and I am safe. And even though the Passover has been observed for centuries later, and millions of lambs have died, a staggering amount of blood has been shed, it was not enough, right, to ultimately take away our sin. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. You see, God wanted to work a deeper deliverance that night for Israel. See, the wheels were turning for a deeper future deliverance for us and for Israel. And it was an incredible first night of the Passover for the Israelites. But God was telling Israel and he's telling us, you need another deliverance, one that's even deeper and more radical because you have a bigger debt. You have a bigger problem. You have a bigger, deeper spiritual bondage. And that's when we arrive to Mark chapter 14 today. Here is the bigger deliverance here. Fast forward with me that night to Jesus when he was betrayed by his uh, uh, captors. He, was, he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. He asks his disciples to come together to celebrate the Passover. 
And Jesus is standing at the foot of the table presiding over the meal. The Passover meal was always provided, presided over by the father of that particular Jewish family. So Jesus, being the father of that family, presides over the disciples and their Passover meal. And he's, as he's presiding over that meal, two enormous shocks would have hit the disciples. Two shocks, two things that the disciples, it would have blown their mind when Jesus said these things. The first thing is this. He's presiding over the meal as the father. And he says, this bread that I am holding, the father in the Jewish family presiding over the Passover, the first thing he would say was, the bread that I am holding in my hand is the bread of affliction. Our ancestors suffered under the bondage of Egypt and they suffered in the wilderness for us so that we could be set free. But instead, Jesus holding the bread, does he say this bread is the bread of affliction? No. What does Mark say that he tells us that he says? Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. And that would have been an awkward moment for the disciples. It would have been a moment full of tension because these guys would have known the liturgy of the Passover. They would celebrate it their whole lives. It was in their family. They would have, you know, you know when somebody recites something that you know well and you can, you know, you can do it, you're, you're whispering it to yourself because you know it so well. I imagine the disciples would have been trying to do the same thing, but when he gets to the part and says, instead of this bread is the bread of affliction, he says, this bread is my body broken for you. The disciples have been, wait a minute, Jesus. No, 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 you were supposed to say, hold on, let's start over. You were supposed to say, this bread is the bread of my affliction, not this is my body. Come on, Jesus, let's do this again. They would have been shot because Jesus would have said, no, this bread is my body, in fact, I am the bread of affliction. I am the bread of affliction because I am going to suffer on the cross in order to give you the ultimate freedom for sin, the ultimate freedom from the bondage of sin. I am the bread of affliction, he says. Then he would have placed that down. And the second shock that would have come to disciples is Jesus was presiding over this meal there were supposed to be three key things on the table to celebrate Passover. You had to have three things in order to properly celebrate Passover. You would have had the unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, as Exodus talks about. Jesus broke the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. You would have had four cups of wine, right? And Jesus did indeed pour wine from the cups, as Mark told us, as we read. And then thirdly on the table, the third element you would have on the table was a lamb on the Passover table. It was a Passover meal. You had to have the lamb, the lamb whose blood was shed. Then you would cook that lamb and you would eat it. But there was no reference to a lamb here, was there? He references the bread. He references the wine. But there is no reference of a lamb, is there? There is no lamb on this Passover table. When, Je when Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he what kind of Passover meal is this, Jesus? There is no lamb on the table. Where's the lamb? You see, there was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. You get that? There was no lamb on the table. He was presiding over the meal himself. The lamb was at the table. In fact, he planned it that way because Jesus was saying to the disciples and to the whole world that night, just like John had declared when we saw this in the very first sermon in Mark. You remember this? When John baptized Jesus. He saw Jesus coming and what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God 
who comes to take away the sin of the world. The ultimate lamb has come to give you the ultimate salvation that you need. You see, God gave up his firstborn son in order to save us. Do you see the direct connection that we just talked about earlier with Abraham and Isaac, right? God's saying, listen, Abraham, I understand. I understand what it's going to be like to give up my firstborn son. I know what it feels like to have the loss of my firstborn. For my firstborn Jesus is about to walk up that mountain too and be stretched up on a cross on wood, be bound on an altar of wood to die. But on Calvary, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't speak up like he did with Abraham. You remember when Abraham was about to plunge the knife in his son, God spoke up and said, Abraham, stop. I have provided a sacrifice for you. But when Jesus is on the cross and he says the, the most infinitely powerful and eternal question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Stephen Lafarge's sins, past, present, and future, were applied to Jesus on the cross, and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Stephen has betrayed me, and I have taken his sins, I have appropriated his sins, every single one of them, and every single one that he will even commit. God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't speak up, did he? Instead, it was the silence of heaven dead silence all of my debt and sin fell on Christ and he paid the price of my redemption with his silence God didn't rescue his firstborn from the cross he didn't spare Jesus the agony all of my sin fell on Christ he paid my debt with his blood that's astounding folks he has paid your debt that deserves infinite punishment with his blood. It's finished. You see, the Passover meal was an actual meal, wasn't it? It wasn't enough that the lamb was slain, right? And its blood put on the doorpost. That protected them, but it was a meal. The lamb wasn't just slain, the blood put on the doorpost, and then the, the, the flesh, the meat was discarded. And they cooked it, and they ate that. It had to be ingested. It had to be eaten. It had to be taken in, right? You had to take it. In the same way this morning as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a way of taking in the death of Christ for yourself. It's a way for you to appropriate Christ personally. You know, Jesus said here in Mark, what did he say? While they were eating, Jesus took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body. Jesus is saying, listen, guys, take it. No, Jesus, no, listen, take it and eat it because you can't be saved and you can't be safe unless you take me. You see, he is letting us know that we have to take what he is doing for us, right? You know, you can sit at the most abundant meal. Somebody prepares a meal. You're a guest in their home. They invite you and they spend hours cooking and they have this abundant, delicious meal sitting right in front of you and it smells amazing, right? You're like, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> this smells so good, you know. It's sitting right in front of you, piping hot and ready to eat. And you can proceed to starve to death while that meal sits right in front of you, right? If you don't take it. To be nourished by a meal, what do you have to do? You have to take it. You have to eat it. 
See, taking it as the same thing as saying, this is real food and I need Christ's unconditional commitment to me. I need it. I got to take it. You got to take it, folks. This meal is for you. If you are in Christ today, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, he is saying, beloved, take it. Don't reject me. Don't take yourself. Don't take your works. Don't take your goodness. Don't take your competitive spirit with other Christians. Leave all that stuff behind. Take me. Take me. Eat it. Take it. This table is for you if you're in Christ. This isn't Wellspring Presbyterian Church's table. This isn't our denomination, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church's table. This is the Lord's table. This is Christ's body and blood broken and shed for you. And he is calling you this morning to take it. Take it with joy. Take it with joy. You know, he said in the Passover, they were to eat their food in haste, to gather their cloak and to leave in a hurry. We don't do that now, do we? You don't have to, you don't have to be in a hurry anymore. You can savor Jesus. You can savor his grace. It's so good. If you've never savored it and you ever tasted of Jesus, Psalm says, taste and see that the Lord, Psalm 46 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you've never tasted and seen that Jesus is good, then fall at his feet and say, I want to know you. I want to eat you. That sounds barbaric and cannibalistic, but I want to eat you, Jesus. I want to know you. I want to taste you. I want to take it. Guess what? He will freely give to you everything that he has in Christ. Paul says that he will give you grace upon grace if you would just trust him. That he can wipe away your sins, past, present, and future, and give you forgiveness, eternal and everlasting. Give you his love, eternal and everlasting, if you would but just take it. So I want to call the elders to go ahead and come forward as we celebrate. Not somberly, but we celebrate and we savor the Lord's Supper together. So go ahead and come on up if you would, elders. Let me encourage you, if you're not sure where you stand with the Lord, if you're not sure where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to let these elements pass you by. Don't be embarrassed by that. As a matter of fact, I think it's the Lord deeply at work in your life, and don't neglect that. Allow these elements to pass you by and use this time to really think through, God, do I really know you? Maybe I've never really taken you before. I thought I have, but maybe I haven't. And then come and talk with me. Come and talk to one of our elders. Let us give you the assurance of what it means to know the Lord Jesus. It's really easy. Not hard. Just taking it. Taking him. Taking what he's done for you. Trusting him. Praying and asking him to forgive you and to transform your life. It's pretty easy. So use this time to let the elements pass you by and, and use this time to ask the Lord, I'm not sure that I know you, Lord. I want to know you. Lord Jesus, help me to take you. I want you. I need you. Maybe you have children here today who've never made that commitment before the Lord. They've not met with the elders and become communicant members of Wellspring. Let me encourage you again to let the elements pass by them, not to let them be embarrassed. What a great time and opportunity for you today to at lunch or during nap time. <laughs> sit down and explain to them how precious it is to know the Lord Jesus. Again, this isn't Wellspring's table. This isn't the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church's table. This is the Lord's table. Come, eat, savor, take.
the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Lord Jesus, as we just read, took bread, and on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread, and he had given thanks, and he said, this is not the bread of affliction, right? This is my body broken for you, and I am the bread of affliction. (laughs) Wow. Eat this, he says. Take it. Savor it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. We praise you for your willingness to take our sin upon yourself. God, thank you that your body was broken for us. And we ask, Lord, that you would consecrate this bread from a secular to a sacred use that we might always remember the sacrifice, the infinite sacrifice of your infinite love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.